Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Fisher Investments Market Insights Podcast. My name is Naj Srinivas, Corporate Communications Group Manager here at the firm. And today, I have a very special guest, Eric Renault, Vice President of U.S. Client Services. Hello, Naj. Nice to be here. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Of course. So, Eric, you spent uh, a few years in client services here at the firm. You've also spent a number of years in our research group. What are some of the questions that clients are asking us right now about capital markets? What are they worried about? What are they concerned with? Sure. The primary stuff our clients are asking about is really not all that different from what you would be seeing on CNBC every day or any of the other big uh, financial media uh, organizations. So if you flip that on today or if you talk to our client base, you're hearing a lot of questions about politics about geopolitics and potential conflicts around the world. And when they have time for it, they get back to worrying about the markets and whether or not um, this bull market, which just hit its eight-year anniversary, still has legs. So one of the questions that has come up or one of the things I've heard clients ask about, you mentioned this bull market's eight years long now. Markets are all-time highs. How much longer can this bull market go? Are clients concerned about being invested right now or or if this this bull market is coming to an end? Yeah, of course. Um, Nobody can tell you that with any amount of certainty. And one of the things we believe in at Fisher real strongly, you've heard us talk about this many times, is that it's darn difficult to forecast much further out than 12 to 18 months. And by that measure, when we look out into the future, we don't see a lot of things that have a high probability of derailing the bull market. How long can it go? We don't know. Eight years makes this quite possibly one of the longest. Is that a question clients are asking? Absolutely. And the way you see it is uh, questions about investing into all-time highs, whether or not we should be taking some cash off the table, um, what's going to propel really that next leg of the bull market. Those are the, the questions that are on people's minds. And I think If you take a step back from the questions themselves and you think about the very fact that question is being asked with such frequency, that in and of itself is a bullish sign because it tells you there's still a lot of skepticism out there and plenty of room for the market and the economy to beat people's still relatively low expectations. In that that last part there, referring to skepticism, you are actually... Uh, referring back to John Templeton, Sir John Templeton's quote. Right. The, it, early on in a bull market recovery, people really can't get out of the pessimism they see. They can't see any way forward for the world. It's really in the final death throes of a bull market in retrospect when um, euphoria and acute optimism take over where people really can't see risks for what they are and they think the only thing the market can do is move up. That the world's ability to beat those high expectations uh, really diminishes and that presents some big downside risk to stocks. When I look out at the world today, we see investors still questioning many things and interpreting many things that are neutral at worst or positive at best as negative. Things like um, declining oil prices, for instance, or potential changes to the tax code or uh, new political regimes all around the world, almost all of that without exception is being perceived as negative and risky. Our view is that bias toward perceiving things as negative tells us that there's still plenty of room for sentiment to improve and for positive fundamentals to be um, created without getting a commensurate increase in valuations. 
so that there's lots of worry out there in the world is actually a sign that this bull market has more room to run. It's where you lack any of that worry that it's a sign that the bull market's probably coming to an end. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That, that's exactly how you want to think about it. But that's one of the most difficult things for investors to, to really grasp onto. Um, because when they do feel that skepticism, they, they really can't separate that from forward-looking outlook for markets. Again, it's when everyone is feeling greedy and optimistic that you should start to feel a little bit more nervous in your portfolio. And we don't think we're, we're seeing that across our client base, certainly at Fisher, and then more broadly with the, the financial markets. So let's switch gears here to maybe a sensitive topic, but let's talk politics for a moment. Whether you're on the, the side of, of being a big fan of President Trump or you're on the side of, of disagreeing with a lot of his policies, there's an awful lot of talk about tax reform, fiscal spending, renegotiating trade deals. How does all of that impact markets? I'll say something I'm going to guess most of our listeners don't agree with. Very little. Very, very little. What Trump is tweeting what the Republicans or Democrats are doing in Congress from one day to the next um, tells you very little about where stock markets are going in the immediate term, despite the fact that that's what darn near everyone seems to be focused on. The reason for that is, um, and this is a feature we, we've talked about at length, is when you look to Congress and when you look to Washington, the president's power is um, institutionally limited. And while Republicans have majorities in uh, both chambers, they aren't strong enough majorities to allow the president to legislate or act with impunity. It, when you look at Trump's first 100 days, which we've just crossed uh, recently here, what he's done versus what he said, there's very little connection between the two. He hasn't passed tax reform. He hasn't meaningfully reformed immigration policy. He said he was going to leave NAFTA, and now he's saying he's going to be in NAFTA. There are many things he said on the campaign trail, and even since he was elected, that haven't come to fruition. And when you look at what he's actually done, it's very little. We think what's going on in U.S. politics more than anything is simply distracting folks from the underlying positive fundamentals that have continued quietly pushing markets higher. A question we get all the time is what happens if Trump starts failing in his policies given markets have responded so optimistically to his election. Our view is actually that that's a red herring, that what's been going on in markets the last several months is simply a continuation of what's been happening over the last eight years, which is fundamentals are quietly improving, sentiment really hasn't been catching up, valuations are expanding modestly, but corporations continue expanding profits at a very healthy rate. That to us is the big story right now. If you do want to talk politics and you do want to talk about where it really matters, we look overseas. Not to say U.S. politics don't matter, because they do, but because overseas is where you have the bigger impacts right now with all of the elections coming at us. The French first round of French elections just wrapped up. You have German elections coming up. You have a second round of French elections coming up. You have a variety of referendums coming up in China and elsewhere. All of those things have the effect of weighing on sentiment globally. And our view is, almost irrespective of how those elections come out, what they produce is a reduction in uncertainty. Markets, of course, inherently dislike uncertainty more than anything else. That's exactly right. We saw that play out in the U.S. very strongly last year. You can see that happen over history. We think as you get more political certainty in Europe, whether you like the certainty that reality provides or not, that that 
has the effect of improving overall sentiment and pushing stock prices higher. Brexit is the perfect proof case for that. Brexit was widely expected to go the other way. Pollsters thought that the stay camp would leave pretty handily. And then, of course, leave won pretty handily. And that surprised a lot of people, including markets, for a little while. Markets fell in the immediate aftermath, but it only took a couple of trading days for, for markets to regain their pre-June 23rd, 2016 levels. And keep going higher. Yeah. And I, I think that's such a good corollary to what's happened in the U.S., where you look at Brexit, people were surprised by the outcome. The reality is we don't know what the effects of Brexit are going to be for some time. I think it's the same thing with the Trump presidency. We really don't know what's going to happen there. Nobody does. Um, but we know the effects so far have been quite mild relative to expectations. And in the meantime, markets have continued um, grinding higher as fundamentals have remained very positive. And of course, that isn't a feature that's unique to Trump alone. That, that's a feature of, of all presidents. They say a lot of things on the campaign trail, a lot of promises to appeal to the widest swath of voters they possibly can. And then they get into office and they realize that they're stuck in the swamp. They can't get quite as much done as they promised, especially not unilaterally. That's exactly right. And that's not a feature of Republicans or Democrats. It's a feature of politicians. Um, and it's a feature of politicians in the U.S. At the federal level, state level, local level, overseas, that is the reality of politics. The, the biggest swamp is Brussels, right? <laughs> that's, yeah, if you think it's bad in Washington, you should go take a look at, at Europe. So you mentioned that markets are moving on some of the positive fundamentals out there in the world. Can you take us through some of what those positive fundamentals are? And I know it's a little difficult without having the, the advantage of charts and graphs in front yeah, of you here. Sure. But. sure, I'm happy to. And I think there are a variety of factors that people really aren't looking. And I'll just I'll rattle off a handful of them. And then let's go into more detail on some that you think are interesting. Um, the global yield curve is wide right now, which is a very positive thing for markets historically. Economic growth, almost anywhere you look, is growing at a very healthy rate. It's growing uh, not too fast to be creating lots of inflation, but certainly not too slow to not be generating um, new employment and healthy revenue and pr profit growth for corporations around the world. Um, you're seeing uh, very low inflation expectations and realized inflation around the world, which gives corporations lots of flexibility to invest money in things that enhance productivity. And of course, you're seeing uh, sentiment still stay restrained just about everywhere you look. You, you see very few examples of capital markets or segments of the capital markets that are getting overheated from a sentiment perspective. So you mentioned the yield curve, Eric. Can you walk us through that a little bit? The yield curve for folks who, who don't have a background in banking or investing is simply the difference between short and long-term interest rates. When a bank is able to take in deposits at a very low short-term interest rate and then turn around and lend against those deposits and earn a, a, a healthy long-term interest rate, that's ultimately something that drives not only bank profitability, but also the banking system's ability to lend to the economy, to expand money supply and increase the velocity of money, which is a very powerful tailwind to economic growth. That's not a U.S. or foreign thing. That's something that applies always and everywhere in a free-functioning economy. When we're analyzing markets, that's one of the first things we evaluate is the relative width of the or breadth of yield curve, if you want to think about it that way. And um, with very few exceptions around the world, it, it's positive um, and to a healthy healthy margin. Some places it's more narrow than others, but but broadly, um, because global capital markets are global in nature, you see that 
that very uh, positive effect happening. And then, of course, the yield curve speaks to banks' propensity to lend. When the yield curve is high and rising, that means their profit margins are pretty fat and wide, and they have more propensity to lend, lending being the oil in the engine of the economy. That's exactly right. Lending is really um, what allows an economy not only to function, but also to expand. It what allow, It's what allows corporations to take risks and make investments beyond the revenue they've earned today or in the recent past. Um, I think you have to layer on top of the yield curve the overall capital situation with banks globally, but particularly in the big banking powerhouses of the U.S. and Europe. In both of those areas, not only do you see banks with higher capital asset ratios than they've ever had, you also see the asset quality of their um, assets and reserves at levels we've really never seen before, which means that not only do they have high motivation to lend, and there's high profitability in making loans today, but their ability to make loans is higher than it's been in recent years. I think an underappreciated positive people really don't talk about at all, and that gets hidden in the headlines you see about um, debt rising to historical highs, is that debt as a percentage of household assets, whether you're looking at a place like the United States or Europe, are at multi-generational lows. So you have banks that are highly incentivized to lend, banks that are highly able to lend, you have households that are underbanked. That produces an environment where if people want to take out credit cards, if they want to take out mortgages, they have the ability to, and that has historically been a very positive driver of growth. And something I think by and large the media has overlooked. What else? We talked about lending and the yield curve. What other fundamental factors are we looking at right now that underpin this bull market continuing, at least for the next 12 to 18 months? Sure. There are a variety of things or or benefits that uh, accrue to an economy when you have um, relatively low oil prices compared to demand like we have today. We've done a lot of work on, on oil over the last several decades of researching oil markets and The relationship between oil prices, economic growth, and the stock market is not nearly as direct as they like to make it sound in the media, but I think there are some um, unsung benefits of low oil prices globally. One, corporations that that have oil or other petroleum products as inputs to their business are no longer having to spend as much money simply buying that commodity and are able to reinvest that money in productivity enhancing investments like new software, cloud computing, or frankly, new employees. We've also observed that as employment has picked up, what corporations will typically do as employment starts to rise and wages start to rise alongside that is start to make investments in productivity enhancing software. And whether it's simply buying new computers, more advanced servers, which when you look across the US or Europe or any of the big economic engines of the world, Um, The age of technology stock has risen markedly in the last decade, and so there's plenty of room out there to refresh some of the hardware and software, and I think as corporations have more money to do that as a result of healthy revenue and profit growth, but also because input costs are falling almost everywhere you look, um, I think that's a positive and uh, an underappreciated aspect of the fundamental economy. Eric, one of the things that many of our clients are worried about, and I touched on this earlier in the podcast, is when is this bull market going to meet its end? You said it's eight years long. The average bull market runs about five and a half years. We're definitely not in the the early parts of this bull market. So what is going to cause this bull market to meet its end? 
people ask us that question all the time and they always frame it with respect to when will it come to an end and what will cause the end. I think a more instructive conversation is to talk about how bull markets come to an end. You can really have it come to an end in, in one of two ways and there really aren't exceptions to this. You have the wall or the wallop. We refer to the wall as bull markets coming to the end of that wall of worry. In other words, expectations have risen too high, sentiment is cooking, it's boiling over. People look out to the future and they say there's simply nothing that could derail this bull market. It's the new economy. Exactly. You know, it, it's, you know, it's the new normal but in reverse. Okay? And people, are, people simply can't see any risks. There's nothing that could derail things. We look out at the economy today and continue to see sentiment restrained across the board. Lots of skepticism out there. It's certainly improved over the last several years, but we're a long way away from um, your Uber driver telling you you have to go out and buy options on this stock you've never heard of, or your grandma giving you stock tips. That's really not happening yet. Um, the other way it comes to an end, and, and this is really the thing that people are more watchful of, but that is perhaps even more rare than hitting that, that wall, so to speak, is the wallop. And when we talk about a wallop, it's some big external shock to the economy that nobody was expecting that is of sufficient magnitude to turn the trend in global economic growth from being up and to the right to down to into the right. We're talking about an event that would cause literally trillions of dollars worth of economic um, decline and contraction. Uh, those types of things are historically things like world wars, big monetary policy errors, trade wars, that type of thing. We saw the wall up back in 2008 with the uh, regulatory and financial crisis that came from the housing market and then the uh, ill-guided response to that, of course. Um, when we look out at the economy today, we really don't see much likelihood of either, at least not in the next 12 to 18 months. I think people will often point to things like saber rattling out of North Korea. Maybe it's more than saber rattling, maybe it isn't. I think they point to things like the potential for terrorism coming out of the Middle East. Um, you're cer certainly seeing more examples of that happening in Western Europe and even to a certain extent here in the U.S. When we look at that type of thing, we have to take a real callous approach and say, look, have these more limited conflicts in the world, whether it's the U.S. intervening in a rogue government's um, military operations or whether it's... Um, personally tragic but economically insignificant events like terrorism um, or other smaller skirmishes around the world, do those things have the potential and capacity to, to really turn markets downward? Historically, the answer has been no. You look at things like 9-11, which was tragic, no question about it. But within a couple of months, markets had achieved the levels they were at before. You look at much larger conflicts like the Iraq War, the first one, the second one. You look at uh, things like the Six-Day War in Israel. You, you look to basically any example you see all around the world historically. These things, unless it's a global conflict where trade is systematically disrupted like it was in World War One and Two, and you really don't see that type of conflict having the ability to, to plunge us into a new bear market. So looking out of the next 12 to 18 months, what should investors expect? Rising stock prices, plain and simple. We're, we think you have at least 12 to 18 months more bull market coming at us here. And if you think about it tactically, I think there are a few opportunities you have to think about. 
the U.S. has led the bulk of this bull market over the last eight years. We think fundamentals in the U.S. are likely to remain very positive, but where they're most positive and most underappreciated is Europe. We think there are good opportunities overseas to take advantage of some of that fundamental growth, particularly in an environment that is really being held back from a sentiment perspective by uncertainty around politics, which we think as the year goes on will really wane. I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to get nice, broad exposure to capital markets right now with a particular focus on the international markets. Well, that's all we have time for in this edition. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. And for more, please visit marketminder.com. Thanks for listening. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration. Copyright Fisher Investments 2017.